Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our hearts and heads are sound of preparation for worship. Let us pray. So God, this evening we pray for your thoughts upon us through Christ Jesus, Lord, thoughts of goodness and thoughts of mercy, guiding us, Lord, to our destined end to glorify you and enjoy you forever. We pray, God, this evening would be a foretaste of that in heaven divine. In your name we pray. Amen. We lift our hearts and songs before you, God, and not only on this day, but throughout the week, Lord, as we sing praises in our hearts and with our lips, between places as we drive in the car or at home, perhaps, Lord, or at night, during uh, prayer time, whatever the case is, Lord. May we not forget to do such things and to your name throughout the week, Lord, to swiffen our hearts towards obedience and love towards you. We pray in particular this evening, God, as we gather together, the beginning of this week and the close of your day. We pray for the upcoming Presbytery meeting next week, that you would be with us, Lord, uh, as a Presbytery, uh, with the chairs, committees, and the committees themselves, Lord, and the moderator, and the clerk, and everyone else involved in the travel that we have to deal with, Lord. We ask for unity and continued truth in the Presbytery, God, and faithfulness to your word and all that we do and the decisions that we make. God, we pray for the churches as a whole, Lord, that is all the churches there and CODAs, Wyoming and Utah and Colorado, God above, that you continue to be with them, that you would continue to strengthen them, God, that you continue to watch over them in your special providence, Lord. Provide for them both for body and soul, Lord, for the families, for the individuals, for the children, God, uh, that they would have faithful pastors and willing uh, elders and deacons, God, to help the church and do their job and mission to help one another and guide and direct such things, Lord, as needed. And for all the members themselves to be faithful to your word, to submit to the discipline of the church to the extent that it's faithful to the word of God. And, Lord God, to support the ministry and to encourage one another and to take their gifts and abilities to help the churches. We pray especially, Lord, for the smaller churches, Lord, uh, and the countryside where lots of the cities are shrinking, Lord, as the young people uh, no longer wish to be around there, wish to go to the city. Our Lord and Savior, be with those churches. Help them reach they can to the farming community and elsewhere, God, above. We pray, Lord, also for our friends and family, Lord. Those who are Christians, but we have disagreements, Lord, theologically and practically, that we would continue to be gracious towards them and they to us, God, and that we would uh, not give up our convictions, Lord, but uh, learn, perhaps, if we need to, good ways of communicating uh, our differences, Lord, and certainly have patience, Lord, if uh, these discussions don't come up. We have, Lord, a long-time friendship with them and love for them, especially if they're family members, God, and so may we continue to be patient. And certainly pray for them, God, uh, that they would grow and that we would grow as well, Lord, in obedience to your word and fruit, uh, growth in the fruits of the Spirit, God above. We pray especially, Lord, for those family members who are religious but not Christian. They're confused, God, about who Christ is, about the gospel, about the good news, about repentance and faith, God above. Help them, we pray, to move their hearts, Lord, to repentance as we read in Second Timothy, God, that perchance that you would move them and grant them repentance, we pray. We pray the same, Lord, for the unsaved, and family members, Lord, and perhaps co-workers and whoever else they may be, God, uh, that they would also have their hearts moved by your Spirit. Help us, Lord, in our feeble way. Communicate the truth to them. Certainly, Lord, God, to be prepared to give an answer of the hope that is within us. Our Lord and Savior, continue to pray for God, our Christian education, the Christian education approach importance of instruction in the Word of God uh, and the truth of the Word and Christian living and the law and the gospel, our denominational level, Lord, the General Assembly, presbyteries across our nation, our churches, certainly, God, and our families, Lord, that we continue to take such things seriously, God, to teach our children, to teach ourselves that we are lifelong students of the Word of God, grow thereby and to learn thereby and to apply it in our lives, God, and to trust in you, to grow in grace, grow in, Lord, trust in you, callings in life. Help us, God, to that end with our monies, with our funds, Lord, and wisdom for the committees, 
and at the denomination of Presbyterian levels, in the sessions, God and the family's Lord, uh, to know uh, how to feed the children, to know how, well, how much to feed them, at what age, Lord, and to be aware of where they are and the weaknesses and the dangers, especially, God, in the world around us, Lord, that we would instruct them to flee error and lies, Lord, and to embrace Jesus Christ anew, to flee uh, the temptations of the flesh, Lord, especially as they get into youth, Lord, and their bodies change, uh, that they would be well grounded in your truth and your Ten Commandments, God, not to flee such temptations, to flee such lies, and the things that tear down and harm to us. God, we pray your spirit be upon us, especially, Lord, upon our church and upon our families, God. Continue not to give up, to instruct one another, and to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior through Christian education. We pray all these things in your glorious name alone. Amen. We indeed, indeed praise you and honor you, God, with our whole lives and also with the tithes and offerings. Accept them, we pray, through the blood of Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated and we can go to the sermon, I pray. Renee, could you give me some water, please? First Peter chapter 2, Peter chapter 2, 18 and following. Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. This is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. He no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let us, words God above, we are called by your spirit through the mouth of Peter, submit to those over us, here in particular, God, to submit to our masters and bosses on our jobs for Christ's sake, simply for Christ's sake. Help us to that end to, that end, to better understand it, especially, again, in the American uh, scene that we find ourselves in, Lord, to apply these truths in our lives. In the name alone we pray. Amen. Here we have this uh, famous and relatively detailed section here of submission. We know Paul preaches submission. Peter preaches submission. Christ preaches submission, as you recall. Christ himself said, you know, listen to the Pharisees. They sit in the seat of Moses. Pharisees that we say bad name <laughs> now. So they're not the best leaders to submit to. And yet Christ said, submit. And so this is where we find ourselves in uh, and many times in our lives with respect to submitting to bosses and bad bosses, especially if we cannot find a new job. So I want to start out with some of the questions we have in the uh, Shorter Catechism, a connection here to this text. We have, which is the fifth commandment? Which is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is honor thy father and mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now this is obvious, just repeating ten commandments. Even so, questions arise from this commandment. For example, question 124. Who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? What exactly is it talking about here? And the answer we have is by father and mother, the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, those who gave birth to you, but also superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. I think you see already how the fifth commandment is here. Peter is unpacking the fifth commandment. 
The call of submission to the government, verses 13 and following, here to your bosses or your masters back then, verses 18 and following, and then to the family. Fifth commandment. This is where these commands, what our forefathers saw most clearly. The fifth commandment is more than obedience to parents. It is obedience to all authorities in our lives. It's those who are older, older than us and have greater gifts than us, in that case, even regardless of age. It includes all their major places of authority in our lives, family, church, we would say today, states. We don't use the word commonwealth or commonweal, as it used to be called. And also includes our bosses at work. They are authorities over us. We have another question that can come out of question 124 or 123 of the Fifth Commandment. Who are our parents? There are all kinds of authorities that are our parents metaphorically. We can have another question. Why are superior styled father or mother? Why are they called? Why are our bosses called fathers and mothers? Why are our parents, or not parents, that is the Parental authority of the church and the commonwealth called parents, fathers, and mothers of the church. Why are superiors styled father and mother? Superiors are styled father and mother both to teach them in all duties toward their inferiors, like natural parents, to express love and tenderness to them, according to their several relations, and to work inferiors to a greater willingness and cheerfulness in performing their duties to their superiors as to their parents. And so, for the superiors, the bosses are supposed to treat those under them like parents would to express love and tenderness towards them, understand their situation in life. And on the flip side, those of us who work for our bosses, who are like mothers and fathers to us, or are supposed to be morally and metaphorically, to submit to them like we would to our parents and have a proper performance of our duties and even will, willingness and cheerfulness and submission to them. This is a mouthful to be sure. What I want to focus here on this second question of what the fifth commandment is about, why are they called mother and father? Why does God use the biological picture to express all earthly authority? And that is to make it easier for us to encourage us more acceptable to our flesh, if I may put it that way, to submit to those who are not our parents, to look at them in a different light. And after all, back during the time of the Bible and Hundred years thereafter, to the time of the Puritans, lots of people, lots of workers, lots of servants lived nearby, if not in the house of their master. Household servants, farm work in the back, working for somebody else. You're working for a master, and they were called masters or superiors at the time of the Puritans, and even before then. And it was most natural to think of them as someone a little more than just your boss. I mean, you lived with them, lots and lots, especially the slaves. We'll talk a little bit about that have some interesting information about slaves during the time of the Roman Empire. At least interesting to me, because it was new to me. Or at least maybe I forgot it. I'm getting old in my old age. So you would be a servant in a rich man's house, taking care of the grounds, or even teaching the children, balancing the books of the house. It's doubly so for household servants. They're literally there in the house, taking care of things in the house, and the kitchen, and everything else. So you're living with them, and it makes sense that you would think of them as something more than a boss. So God has deigned it this way historically. Again, they had lots of grew up who we were close to each other with smaller communities and the like. And you would look at them as a father, as a second father. Elders called pastor, pastor, ruling elder Lou, Paul Lou, called him Grandpa Lou, like a grandpa to the family. They all have people like that or an uncle. Understand that connection. And it's hard in the American scene, I think, to think of our bosses as our father. That is, one who is not just there to make money off of, or he's there to make money off of you, although that is what is pushed in the American scene, isn't it? It's all about the money exchange. Nothing about, well, 
maybe there's a little more here going on. I should be more considerate as a boss and realize you have a life and you have a church and you have a family. Flip side, the servants perhaps work a little more and not be grudging in their ability, putting their effort towards the boss. So that's a little summary there as we go here into the points. First point, command to submit to masters, verses 18 to 20. Command to submit to masters or to your business father. We call our social fathers, our church fathers. What do you call it in the business world or job world? I don't know. Uh, but again, the old days was called master. And it wasn't used necessarily in a negative sense. The word master negatively often back then. It's just a name used. In fact, I'll tell you the name in a bit. And you'd be really surprised what name they used to use in the Bible, the Greek word. Trip knows what it is. Servants. The first thing here that's interesting in this text, servants, the word for master. Servants is a different word than the one I'm used to. Ulos, which is often translated slave, and that's what that word is. It can mean use, it can mean servant, but if you can talk about a slave slave, you're going to use the word doulos. Here it's a different word. The root word is house. It means house servants. That's a that's a good translation here. Now house servant could be a slave, obviously, or maybe not a slave. So they did all kinds of work. A house servant it would mean they lived in the house or back of the house, attached to the house, or something on the land, right? Field work, animal work, household chores, and all that's combined there. Cooking, mending, of course, in medieval ages, wax making, you know, whatever needs to be done in the household. Accounting, if you're a, a really good servant and your master likes you and you do a good job, he may give you more responsibility, a lot of responsibility. I seem to remember somebody in Genesis who got lots of responsibility, right? Working for Pharaoh. He was a slave. He might as well have been a king. He said he was second in, control, in, in charge underneath, and he was a what? Slave. So that, I hope, puts a different perspective on from the typical American perspective, which is anything that's a slave is necessarily inferior and has no power. He had more power than you know, our president in Congress, and he was a slave. So this is how slavery worked for thousands of years. I'm not saying let's go back to it, but I'm saying it's different than what you realize. So accounting, business management, even teaching of children given to servants. Pedagogue is used in the New Testament in Galatians 4, for example, where it says that the law is a pedagogue. That is, that's a special type of teacher who's especially there to discipline this, the boy and make sure he makes it to school. He walks with him across the field, I guess, to the schoolhouse or something. So, what about slavery? Slaves were owned, right? Slaves didn't have rights the way we use the language today in America. They couldn't leave their job at will. They couldn't even get married at will. And they could be punished at will. <laughs> On the flip side. That's the worst of the slave condition. What we typically think of as chattel slavery. But as I've already pointed out, even in the Old Testament, you have the likes of being exalted with great power and authority, even though they are technically slaves. But we see then, during the time of Christ, a little before the time of Christ, maybe 50 to 100 years, as I recall, uh, into the 200s on up, the condition of the slave got better. Before Christianity came along, the condition of the slave better. Because unbelievers can do good things. Don't forget that. Christianity that makes them do good things. Christianity saves your soul. Better instruction about good things, that's true. We have better illumination with the Ten Commandments. But lots of good things happen without Christianity. And this is one of them. It's quite interesting. I have a five-volume set. I got it for crazy cheap at Mardell's. I don't know why they were getting rid of it because no one wants to read it. It's a Zondervan Illustrated Encyclopedia. It has pages and pages and pages and pages, five books worth. Everything you want to know about the Bible and Near East history. I'm slave. I did read it before. I used it for a Sunday school class like 15 years ago. And I didn't remember this part. I didn't read back far enough, apparently. So it turns out, as I said, well before Christ, 
in the Christian era, slaves were getting better. Their burdens were lessening over time. More slaves were released during this time period. This left and right, they're just releasing them. Many had good disposable income, better than a free man. Many had rights to their family. They could marry and they could be with their kids and, and go with them. So if they were sold, the family wouldn't be separated. and We'd go together. 20 AD, the Roman Senate passed a law that criminal slaves were to be tried before the law like a freeman. Dude, did you know that? I never knew that. In 61 AD, a family tried to enforce the old law where, wherein when a master was killed by one slave, all the slaves were killed. That would put fear to make sure that master would be killed, obviously. They tried to enforce it, <laughs> and a riot broke out. The riot was so bad in the city that the Roman soldiers had to come and stomp it out. And even then, the slaves weren't killed. They just gave up. 61 AD, uh, that's a little after the writing of the book of Acts. That's the, a lot of the historical events from the 40s and 50s in the book of Acts of Paul going through the Mediterranean era. Of course, the empire was large, and different masters did different things, and you can get away with, I'm sure, in some places you had bad masters, and they had you know, kickbacks to the local judge and whatever else. And you, know, you know how that works. So, so I'm not saying everything was rosy, and let's all go back and be slaves in, in the Roman Empire, but things were changing even by law. So some still couldn't get married at will. Um, some still had their families broken up. In fact, you still had ag- agricultural slaves usually slept in chains in a prison and were literally worked to death. Uh, Pliny the Elder, famous uh, Roman, who owned over 4,000 agricultural slaves, prided himself in the fact that he did not keep them in chains. So things were changing, but they weren't changing fast enough for some people. And of course, if you worked uh, in the mining, you were as good as dead. Chained as well all the time. Depending on what kind of slave you were, the household slave was getting a lot better. Condition overall was getting better. But a free man, quote, to quote the Zonervan, seldom in better circumstances, was seldom in better circumstances than a slave counterpart. And as I said, and in some cases, slaves had better clothing and more disposable income. A free man could be hired or fired at will. Sounds like today. Uh, certain laws, of course, have protected them from abuses. Sounds like today. <clears throat> And uh, they had all kinds of employment from blue to white collar to self-employed. And in fact, at times, having slaves got so expensive, it was cheaper to hire freemen. The slaves were getting better, and the freemen weren't getting a lot. They were cheaper employment, reversed some places in the economy. And of course, if you can't get a good enough job, you could more than likely be living in the streets. Again, not exactly rare for freemen during the time of Peter's writing here in this text. And while the slave or household servant had a roof over his head, you could be in the streets because 89% of your income could be taken up with basic necessities. You cannot get ahead in that kind of a world. Well, unless you've got good connections. 89% of your income taken up with basic necessities. Can you imagine that? I'm going to another sermon, but we preach through Micah, Malachi, and it's happening actually. If you see the statistics, the middle class is being squeezed. So, and while slaves have uh, had that covered, that is, basic necessities recovered. <laughs> Uh, they were even given a week more of disposable income a month on average. So being a household servant wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Still wouldn't want to be one. Maybe I wouldn't want to even be a freeman back then. <laughs> Thank you very much. I just want to live back then. <clears throat> but this, this puts, a, I think, a different perspective on Peter's words here. He's speaking about masters, masters who are also called despots. That's the Greek word. <laughs> That's the word, despots. Now, certainly they used to be that. Like I said, by the time of Christ, a lot of their powers were curtailed, even by riots. Puritan language, however, comes out of this historical understanding, I think to some extent, when they use the words superior and inferior. And I think we know, we're a mature enough church to know that they're not saying, oh, I'm better than you, (laughs) right? 
They're just talking about superior, that is, you have greater gifts of age, of experience, of ability than other people, especially, so I'm summarizing the, the catechism, especially those who are put in position of authority in the family, in the church, state. I think the implication being that uh, you may be in the position of authority in the state, but not necessarily be greater in gifts over your servants. You'll have to submit to that boss. Got it? That uh, can be quite uncomfortable. Yeah, I've been there. So that's what they're referring to. Superiors and inferiors is not, again, for people to pull their hair out. Or, you know, friends of ours, perhaps, and when they hear this, drives them batty. So not about intrinsic moral worth. That is, you're still created by God. You're still to be treated by God's law with proper honor, which is to say, I say by God's law, not by the way our society is. We're all equal. You should, you should treat me the same. No, I won't treat you the same. If you're attacking me, I will not treat you the same. If you're attacking my family, I will not treat you the same. If you're undermining uh, the protection of my church to worship God, I will not treat you the same, said by God's moral law. And, of course, the despots back then had more power than employers do today, even to the point of flogging, as we read in this text. You all catch that there? Beaten for your faults, verse 20. And Peter says, submit under all kinds of conditions, even distasteful conditions specifically here. If you recall the context, again, Christians apparently thinking having Jesus as king means we don't have to submit to the powers that be. And he's saying you must submit. You are sojourners in this world. And sojourners don't mean that you can just ignore the world, but rather morally you are sojourners. You're not supposed to follow the ways of the world, which is the ways of rebellion. Rather submit to the powers that are over you, lawful powers and lawful laws, of course, or sermon or Sunday school series. But here the emphasis is don't use Christianity as a cloak for rebellion. In society, with your magistrate, with the king, with the governors, nor in your jobs. That's the background. In particular, of course, submitting to unfair masters. Verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. Anyone can submit patiently to punishment for wrongdoing. Lots of unbelievers do that. Unbelievers, some unbelievers can be quicker than Christians to admit, I was wrong. I deserve punishment. I deserve it, you know, docking my pay, loss of hours, whatever. Peter's like, okay, so what's your point? <laughs> you know, you're supposed to do that. What credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? You should take it patiently. It was your fault. But if you do good and suffer, you take it patiently. You did nothing wrong, and you're still punished for it, and you take it patiently, that is commendable before God. And those are hard words. Hard words. Patient submission to punishment for doing the right thing. Hard. That shows the dedication to God's will. Do good and suffer. You take it patiently. That is commendable before God. Now, the word there, beaten, translated here, can be translated strike or maltreatment or trouble. So it actually goes, it has a broad range. And I think uh, many of the translations go to the most specific meaning of striking or, or beating, which isn't the same thing as what? Killing or maiming. thing I want to remind you. Right? This isn't just an excuse to uh, let your boss kill you. Uh, but that this is, again, for household servants, one of the things that could happen to you, if it's a serious enough uh, uh, problem, could hit you back then. Apparently Freeman, too, right? 20 AD, the Senate said, crime you do as a slave is under the same law as a Freeman. You get treated like a slave anymore, like we think of, although they may have been. Now, of course, it's easier to put up with the error of a boss. The boss really messed up. Now, he doesn't get specific here, right? You can see the scenario perhaps being, he's a mean boss, he likes to beat me anyways. But another scenario could be, he's otherwise a good boss, he was misled, he was leaving lied to, and so he hit me. And he said, how dare you do this, and whatever else. 
or maltreated him or whatever the case is. I'm not going to argue it has to be beaten, but uh, the word has very, very far. You're supposed to take it patiently in your boss. And if you understand, that's why I got the larger catechism. And you treat them as a father and you realize, you know, he, he is a pretty good boss in that scenario. And you're going to put up with a little more on you, a perspective on the matter. Now, in the American scenario, you're not going to have this at all. The boss comes after you. You're going to call the police. He's not supposed to hate you. And that's fine. Call the police. Back then, the household servants had no police to call, brothers and sisters, in different law code ways. Powerless, you're powerless. And the servants, the household servants, were powerless. If they got hit, they got flogged. They got hit and flogged. There's nothing they could do about it. So the implication then is, here in this text, when Peter's saying, submit to it, and submit to it patiently, he's saying, don't sin in your response to the boss's error, or his own sin. Again, we don't know if it's an error or sin. I think he would submit in both cases. Pack that in a little bit. Live with the man and his family. You start becoming part of the family. And archaeological records bear that out, of course, that they were. So you would understand and be a little more patient and understanding about the error case. Second point, called to suffer for Christ. So that's the broad overview. That's the broad concern, the specific concern of mistreated, being punished, did nothing wrong. In fact, you did something right. Called to suffer for Christ, verses 21 to 25. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. And he goes through the next few verses and unpacks that truth. Called to what? You are called to a patient submission to wrongful punishment. It is not a request, brothers and sisters, but a call. Hard. Do good and suffer. If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. It is hard. You didn't do anything wrong, but God calls you and them to take the punishment patiently, just as Christ did. He also suffered for us. Christ, who did nothing wrong, we are called to follow in his footsteps. And I think we have already. So this sermon isn't here to, why aren't you guys doing this? I, I think you have, as you can, again, in the American context, unfair bosses, unfair schedules, lying to you. We have a member here who got a prior job, and they just messed with him. And he was trying to be patient with him. He said, you know, I, I, I asked for time off. I have a wedding to go to and everything else. And they mistreated him. Did he go off and attack them? Did he sue them? No, he took it patiently, did what he could, and he found another job. Meanwhile, he was mistreated by that company. Go through multiple stories, difficult co-workers, maybe even co-workers who lie about you. What, get you in trouble, and the boss gets you in trouble, and you did nothing wrong. You listen patiently while he yells at you, he finishes, and then you produce the evidence in your favor. Peter's not saying don't produce the evidence in your favor. I'm not sure exactly how that would be done in the slave condition as, as here, but I'm sure it could have been done. That Until that time comes, there's not much you can do about it. You know, until you can appeal it to the judge, you know, appeal it to or boss's boss or whatever the case is, you have to deal with the maltreatment and the, and the injustice until such time as it can, if ever, be rectified. And again, with the household servants, the rectification is much harder than us. God has given us a lot more freedom for justice and rectification of, of, of problems and on jobs. Grace. So put up with it at work. And in fact, if you can't find another job, you put up with a lot at work, can't you? It's easy to get another job paying job, etc., whatever your conditions are. And so, to some extent, depending on how bad things are, you actually do feel this a lot more than you realize. Put up with these things, even if it's not the same as literally being beaten, less injustice before God against his children, justice. He is not happy. Presumably, Peter was writing to some Christians who were not patient to be punished, but rather were either talking back in anger or passing on gossip or whatever it is that slaves could do to get back at their boss, their master, somewhere, somehow, right? Don't do that. Stop that. Treat him properly, even though he erred. We do that today. Again, you talk to the police officer, you say, sir. You don't say, hey, you moron. Hey, sir, 
I think I think you arrested the wrong guy, you know, me, <laughs> or my family, or you gave me the wrong citation, or whatever the case is. This is what Peter's talking about. We, we run across these things uh, in everyday experiences in our lives. And he gives another reason. The first reason is simply, what credit is it to you? What cred, what, what's the big deal that you patiently bear your faults? You're supposed to do anyways. Even unbelievers do that. But do you patiently bear doing the right thing and being punished anyways? And the second reason here is because Christ suffered. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered, leaving us as an example that we should follow. Here's another reason we ought to follow and do these things, as Peter tells us. Christ is the great exemplar. Not in all things, of course. We're not called to go to the cross. Rather, he encourages us to sustain false punishment as Christ sustained false punishment. When there's no recourse, especially. Slaves have no recourse. Christ purposely made himself have no recourse. He could have always called 10,000 angels to wipe them out. And he quotes Isaiah 53, 9, because he had no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, verse 22. And then 23, when, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, right? He didn't badmouth the boss in front of his face. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. I'm going to get you, buddy, in the dark alley tonight after what you did to me. So you can see here the examples he gives for Christ on the flip side, perhaps what some of the Christians were tempted as slaves to do. Rather, he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So he goes into more theology here. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. And so here, he, after talking of Christ, Christ is a divine exemplar in terms of doing the right thing and yet being punished nevertheless and patiently enduring that punishment. There's a, a goal. The goal is that we live righteousness. Christ's punishment and death had this goal. Who himself bore our sins in his own body. Why? That we, you and I, having died to sins because Christ died for us, we died through Christ, might live for righteousness. Having suffered for doing good is living for righteousness. Not suffering for doing good is also living for righteousness, but he's tying it, of course, to the first part. That we, this is the intent of Christ dying for us, might live for righteousness. Part of righteousness is submitting punishment we don't deserve. And we have to do it. Like turning the other cheek when he did nothing wrong. He talks about that. There are times to be patient, even even leaving our just cause God's hands. As Christ did when he suffered, verse 23, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. God will take care of it. He cannot take care of it. That is, if he's not taking care of it in providence right now, it'll be taken care of eventually in your life perhaps, but certainly when God returns to earth. And then in verse 25, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He moves from a moral admonition to the moral encouragement here at the end, that Christ is our shepherd, and he knows what you are going through, and Christ is protecting you. You can give your just cause for being punished for something you didn't do wrong to him, as he gave it to him who judges righteously. Verse 23, that is God the Father. So the shepherd here, then, is the picture of he who protects you. And you were sheep, and now he's watching over your soul, and he is watching and protecting you and guiding you as well. He knows when we are in trouble for doing the right thing. We have when we have no recourse. Again, in America, we have much recourse. You can just quit the job often on the spot. And when you have no recourse, you always have God. You leave in His hand, and God will all wrongs right. They are hard words for our flesh, but they are not impossible to submit punishment for things you didn't do wrong. Pray and meditate on these verses. Pray for wisdom to avoid sin when dealing with injustice at work from your boss workers. And pray for the power to submit even to unjust punishments. Let us pray. Thank you, God above, for these words, these hard words, but at the same time, Lord, uh, sweetened reminder that we were sheep that had gone astray, and Christ Jesus has 
become our shepherd and overseer. And he protects us and watches over us, God, and guides us. And we can commit ourselves to him who judges righteously. In the name of the Lord we pray. Amen. Now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all.